0: Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. Last August, President Biden signed the PACT Act, expanding benefits and health care to U.S. veterans who were exposed to toxins after sleeping and working in proximity to burn pits on military bases. According to NBC News, the legislation increases veterans' access to medical care and disability payments for exposure to burn pits. It also requires the Department of Veterans Affairs to presume some respiratory illnesses and cancers were related to the exposure, meaning veterans do not have to prove they got sick because of the burn pits in order to receive compensation for their illness. But what about Iraqis who were also exposed to burn pits? Professor Kali Rubai, who has studied the toxic legacy of war in Iraq, says, veterans saw acute, short-term exposure to burn pits at peak health, at the prime of their lives, but Iraqis faced long-term, diffuse exposure at all stages of the life course. So the health effects were varied and widespread. In a 2020 article in Middle East Research and Information Project Journal, she writes, Given the onslaught of military toxic dumping in Iraq, from spent bombs and bullets to base-making, burn pits and junkyards, it is no surprise that widespread cancers and congenital anomalies, along with other major health issues in the civilian population, abound. The medical resources to cope with cancers and birth defects, however, are also impacted by the enduring effects of total war, the targeting of an entire population and their environment, rather than military installations alone. Kali Rubai is an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University, specializing in displacement, ecologies of war, and health justice. She has worked closely with Iraqi families since 2009 and lived in Fallujah over the past year, leading a team of doctors, epidemiologists, and environmental activists to conduct a case-control study among families experiencing birth defects that may be linked to environmental exposure from burn pits and bombings. I spoke with Professor Rabai, about the PACT Act and the environmental and health effects of burn pits on civilians in Iraq. Many burn pits are no longer
1: active. So if you drive up to one, um, if you are able to, some of them are located on bases and you can't access them, but some are, are quite visible. They've been covered over with dirt and nothing grows there. There isn't a lot of activity on a former burn pit. But the communities who are living downwind of those now covered over burn pits are still facing environmental effects. So they're in some ways invisible. They're not big plumes of smoke anymore, and they're not big pits and you don't see flames, but uh, the long-term effects are still there. So I visited the now covered over uh, burn pit at the Balad Air Base. And this is one of the many locations that had large football field size burn pits. And they were burning for 10, 15 years, sometimes 24-7. And they were burning all sorts of things, right? Sometimes old uniforms, sometimes paper, sometimes computers or tank parts. So everything that needed to be destroyed in the project of war ended up entering the air and lungs of Iraqi people day after day after day for decades. And now some Mm -hmm. burn pits are still active. Others have been converted into municipal dumps and then others have been covered over and left.
0: Are burn pits considered superfund sites? And these are locations uh, contaminated by hazardous waste.
1: Uh, Superfund sites and burn pits may or may not be right? Because each one is different. I think what's important in the case of burn pits is to understand the the history of waste removal in warfare. Mm. Because uh, burning things when you're a military isn't new. Armies have done this forever. The idea is to get rid of any materials that could be used by an opponent in the future. And oftentimes burning happens at its height right before a base closes or right before uh, a military unit departs from a place. And this is a long-standing practice. What makes the burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan and other parts of the Middle East in the last 20 years so significant is the kind of waste they were burning and the quantity of waste they were burning were made greater by the privatization of war, which incentivized throwing something away and repurchasing something new and produced more and more and more uh, toxins in the air. And so in this case, the problem with burn pits isn't just the burning of of toxic materials, but the scale at which that burning took place and for the amount of time
0: it took. They even burnt tanks in these pits. Yes, yeah. And they wanted the U.S. um, personnel, soldiers... To be standing guard because they thought that, quote unquote, the enemy, meaning Afghans or Iraqis, soldiers or civilians, I assume, would come and steal what's in those pits. Right.
1: I I mean, on the one hand, war is fire, right? Part of what makes a battle a battle is that something will get exploded or burned, whether you're turning someone's home into a burn pit by dropping a missile on it and lighting their belongings on fire Mm. and burning their curtains and carpets. That's also toxic. Or whether you are burning tanks. And one of the things we have to consider is how warfare itself is very similar at a larger scale to a burn pit. Uh, the amount of fuel it took to transport Mm. that tank overseas and and get it into Iraq in the first place is itself a burning project. A lot of fossil fuels were destroyed to make that happen. And then the tank itself is used to do damage and incendiary damage to, to the material environment around it. And then to get rid of that tank, either to send it somewhere else to be destroying other people's land or to be shipped back or to be burned all of those processes are highly destructive and ecologically damaging. There is no way that tank can exist or move or disappear without people breathing in the combustion and the effects of that combustion.
0: What do you think about the discourse around the environmental impacts of modern war? Because it is often taken for granted that wars will happen, but then what should be done to minimize the damage to the environment, or what should happen after the war is over? What does it take to heal the devastated landscapes? What do you think about these arguments? Thank you for that question. A few points on this.
1: The first is that I often find myself saying things like, quoting one of my favorite scholars, Bridget Gorshi, that war is a climatological event, that war is an accelerant of climate change, that war and the project of war expends the greatest amount of fossil fuels, that warfare and battles often change local ecosystems forever. And those things are all true. But so is green militarism, which is a movement of military regimes to make war better, more palatable, less lethal, apparently. You even see training grounds where militaries have bullets with seeds that will later grow flowers. Underneath this entire debate is that war continues to remain unjust. And even if warfare somehow became wonderful for the environment, it would still be an unjust set of practices. The second part of that is the question of how we define war. So if warfare is the project of destroying worlds, environmental worlds, social world, world, then we know war is a structure, not an event. And that it can't be bound legally or socially to a certain time period or a certain place. And we know that when we bomb Fallujah from the United States, we will all ultimately breathe that air that is the product of that bombing. And when we sell weapons, we will ultimately see more school shootings. And that if we are able to think globally about warfare in the way that we have learned to think globally about climate change, we might be able to understand that both of those processes are derived from the same impulse to dominate and destroy others. And whether those others are rivers or frogs, or human beings, a particular disposition to otherness, that is the impulse to destroy or eliminate, ends up producing unjust and also ecologically devastating conditions at the same time. And in that way, we can identify societies as militarized. Mm. And that militarism is visible in corporate extraction. It's visible in the systemic racism around the world and it's visible in practices of warfare. And that is where I see an intersection in the movement for environmental health and in the movement against warfare. It's that intersection of militarized and confronting our militarized relationship with others. That seems to be where the conversation needs to go. So many people are looking to the future and seeing a bleak outlook, right? There's not a lot of hope. And I think that's a good thing because what that forces us to do is relinquish the idea of innovation and newness as our route to survival and to look to our ancestors and to our elders and actually look at what needs to be repaired and restored and resurgent and revitalize different demilitarized ways of relating to each other and looking to old ways of farming, replanting trees, renewing and restoring all of the life-sustaining practices and relationships that get lost in battles and in corporate relationships. And that is something that really inspires me is that so many Iraqi people in particular are returning after being displaced and they're returning over and over again. And they are insisting on staying on their land finding a way to repair their land in spite of these these forms of irreparable damage? And what does it mean to do repair work in the face of the irreparable, to struggle to sustain lives, even though it is likely that the ultimate survival of an individual group is unlikely?
0: How many burn pits are in Iraq or were?
1: It's funny because I've been looking on the internet for this answer because What defines a burn pit is so complex
0: and abstract,
1: right? So what do we mean? Do we mean a fire that lasted for a day or an official pit that was dug for big fires?
0: For areas that the United States designated to get rid of its waste. In that sense,
1: since 2003, it looks like there were over 250, but it's unclear whether that count is accurate. A lot of that information is based on veteran reporting there were probably more. And, you know, I was just talking to a colleague about this. If you're moving a front line, an offensive line forward, you're likely to burn everything for a day or two before you move as a military unit. That's different than a military base that is permanent and has a location for all of its waste to be burned. But that doesn't mean that that temporary fire isn't also a burn pit. So there are many. I can't give an air. To me, the question is, how long did each one last? Because again, the scale and the duration and intensity of these fires is what's variable in impacting people's health.
0: And how far are these toxic fumes traveled?
1: As deforestation, how long they lingered in the air? That's right. And we know that deforestation happens. We are seeing more and more dust storms that last for longer, more frequent. And of course, that dust is traveling further and hanging in the air for longer. So everything that is sitting on the soil or emitted into smoke is entering people's lungs at a higher rate the fewer
0: trees we have on the ground. We'll talk about um, sandstorms later in the show, but according to the Pentagon, as of March, all of the burn pits are in the Middle East, seven in Syria five of which are under military control and two by contractors, one in Afghanistan and one in Egypt. So it's still going. And again, because these fumes can travel thousands of miles, they could be started in one country, but end up in another. So has there been any studies done to understand the impacts of these toxic fumes on the environment and people's health? a recent New York Times article, which was about burn pits. It says, it is unclear whether other than U.S. troops may be suffering from exposure to the toxic fumes, such as service members from allied countries who served tours on the same bases or civilians living downwind. No large scale organized attempt has been made to study the potential harm cause to civilians who breathe the same smoke, but were just outside the bases, according to an environmental scientist with the Conflict and Environment Observatory. It's a British charity that studies the harm to people and the environment from military activities. So the scientist told the New York Times, the work simply has not been done. And it is complicated work to do, impossible even given all the other comorbidities for the local populations from environmental exposures and all the other effects, he said. But of course, if they were exposed to the same smoke, then there will be similar outcomes, quite possibly worse for children, early and medically vulnerable. It's been reported that veterans who were exposed to the carcinogenic fumes, they developed cancers and other conditions. Some died, some came back with asthma, sinusitis, some developed long-term problems to their skin, eyes, kidneys, liver, heart, and lungs. The PACT Act
1: passing was a huge victory for environmental health justice, even for the people it left out. And here's why. One of the things that the PACT Act does, in addition to providing support for caretakers, the survivors of veterans who died from burn pit exposure and from patients themselves, is that it removes the burden of proof from the patient to demonstrate the cause of their ailments. And of course, in a healthcare system that is just, no one would have to prove why they're sick to get care. That is called the presumptive diagnosis that we cannot prove in a complex, environmentally nuanced context, exactly the specific and singular chemical cause of a health problem, because bodies are different and exposure is complex. But what we can do is give a presumptive diagnosis of burn pit exposure as a cause for a set of symptoms. The presumptive diagnosis basically says, we presume that based on logic, your exposure to this terrible thing that we haven't proven is not bad for your health, probably caused your problems. And for lack of a better explanation, we understand that this suffices. And the presumptive diagnosis is really powerful because in the context of warfare, where destruction is wanton and where basically everything is made into a vector of toxification, we can never pick one individual thing and say that it caused another individual symptom. We can use the presumptive diagnosis to say, hey, this is probably bad for your health. This is probably the cause of your symptoms. So when we're looking at studies of people like Iraqis who live downwind of burn pits, we can presume That when people living downwind of burn pits are less healthy than those living upwind of burn pits, that it has something to do with burn pits. And that's enough for biomedical intervention and for understanding enough about cause and effect to prove probability.
0: There are some commonality in symptoms.
1: There are some, but again, the presumptive diagnosis wouldn't require that. The idea here is that different people get sick in different ways. A child that is just born is going to have different at the third and fourth month of gestation and an older person with a different immune system is going to have different health effects than someone in their 30s and 40s we know that american soldiers were at peak health at a time in their lives in which they received acute short-term exposure to burn pits rather than long-term diffuse exposure at different stages of the life course. And so we would assume that the symptoms would be different. Some of the effects will be shared like cancer. Your real question was about whether or not studies have been conducted and whether or not they're possible. The presumptive diagnosis is possible because the kind of studies that would be conducted would have to account for all of the factors of war and burn pits would be one of many. Right, So having your home bombed, being displaced and having different access to nutrition, breathing air from burn pits, drinking water from waste dumped rivers, and having a destroyed healthcare infrastructure that limits your access to preventative care, like vitamins or early intervention for something like asthma, would all be factors that account for the effects of war including burn pits on developmental health of children or fetal development or long-term trajectories of health for adults. So there haven't been any studies specifically linking burn pits to long-term health effects for Iraqi civilians, but there have been studies that are showing that living near a US military base and therefore near a burn pit means that one is more likely to develop cancer or have a birth defect. This kind of research is critical because it sends us in the right direction. It allows us to understand what we should be looking for, not only because we're all interested in understanding cause and effect to prevent future harm to other communities, but also because every single day in Iraq, doctors are trying to figure out how to provide healthcare to people who face unique kinds of environmental exposure. And so the answer to these questions of what specific things are causing specific health problems can help direct preventative care
0: or interventions when they become urgent. In a 2010 study, which was done, I think, by Iraq itself, more than 40 sites across Iraq are contaminated with high levels of radiations and dioxins. You told me earlier that you took some soil samples.
1: What I did do is grid sampling in the city of Fallujah, so 100 samples of the sand at a certain depth in order to identify heavy metal content in the soil. We haven't done any analysis on that because we don't have funding to do it yet. What will be interesting is to see the degree to which wind and erosion would affect what levels we'd expect. And of course, there are many geologists who can help with that. It turns out that actually in a drier environment where there's a lot of wind, those samples are better preserved than in a wet environment where a lot of soil metabolism is happening. So we would expect to have some results from that. What I expect is a greater measure of long-term proxification are air samples and water samples, And one of the things that some people have been looking at is what is taken up in the food products that are grown, because as we know, Iraq is irrigated. So as rivers are getting dumped into and becoming increasingly saturated with waste from both warfare and ordinary capitalism, we are seeing more and more pollutants moving into the soil and through the soil and, and whether or not all of those you know, heavy metals and other harmful chemicals are being taken up through the root system of plants that are grown in a rock is something that deserves attention and study as well. Because of course, nutrition is one thing, but if your vitamins are coming alongside heavy metals, there's a cost benefit to public health that really is a, a matter of, of grave concern.
0: As you said, burn pizza are... Just a small fraction of what has taken place in Iraq for decades and decades. The number of mines contaminating Iraq is estimated at 25 million. And this is left over from Iran-Iraq war. The shells, ammunitions, and cluster bombs left behind after the war were counted in millions. In particular, this is the UN report, radioactive materials from depleted uranium left by ammunition have contaminated soil and water, causing an exponential growth in birth defects. You and a team of doctors, epidemiologists and environmental activists have been conducting a case control study on the incidence of birth defects and the health effects of long term environmental exposure from burn pits and bombings. Tell us about your study and what you have found.
1: What I will say is my experience has been that doing research in Iraq or doing justice organizing in Iraq requires many decades. It requires a level of commitment that extends across a lifetime. And that isn't just because of the ethics of building community, that's also true. It's also because the extent of violation is so granular. It can be broken down even to the molecular level or built up even to the global scale that it takes decades to really understand what's at stake and to really understand the intricacies of damage and harm and also the complexity of resistance and resurgence and survival and the very clever ways that people are making life happen anyway. So I spent a long time moving back and forth with internally displaced communities at a time when warfare or battles were working like the weather. They would come and go and really shape the way that people were able to farm. So sometimes it was safe to be with your trees and to harvest them or fertilize them or irrigate them, fix the irrigation. And other times farmers would have to leave. And they ended up having to come and go. And displacement became a huge factor in the ecological survival of farming. And then, of course, over time, people started to come back to Fallujah, to the villages around Fallujah, and they started repairing the land. And they were repairing the land with increasingly toxic materials. Now, of course, these are people who have been there since throughout the Iran-Iraq war before the 90s. They survived sanctions and austerity. They have dug up mines that were left over from various wars that had happened. And now they were coming back to completely transformed economic policies that were introduced by the United States and then developed sort of a cascade of private interest that have shaped, completely shaped their economy in a new way. They were also returning to a devastated infrastructure that remains in disrepair. So having to carry jugs of fuel because they had to pour it into the generator, fix the generator because there wasn't an electric grid that could hold more than two hours a day of capacity for them, having to rebuild water irrigation, sometimes for many miles to try and get water back to their fields, and many, many families were rebuilding houses that had been destroyed not once, not twice, but three or four different times first by battles with the United States, then by bombings from their own government and having to clean, carry waste out and rebuild, bombed homes or homes that had missiles in them, handle that heavy metal. Sometimes people were handling body parts from people whose bodies had been destroyed. There was a huge graveyard in Fallujah with many, many, many unmarked graves from 2004. People were reclaiming bodies, people were reclaiming family members. And this huge, massive project of repair was constantly disrupted by ISIS, by corruption. And so in that process, people are contending with environmental contamination as one factor of all of these other infrastructural factors that are shaping their capacity to survive and for their trees to survive and for their babies to survive. And these families had been doing this for quite a while. I started working with them closer to 2014 in person in Iraq. By 2004, the hospital in Fallujah had already started noticing that more and more women were giving birth to children who had disfigured faces, multiple limbs, no head or brain, organs born outside of the body, one eye in the middle, all different kinds, a wide array of birth defects. And they started cataloging this because it became so clear that something was wrong in Fallujah. And there are other parts of Iraq who was one of the first to champion a public outcry. And that brought some attention and some research, but what it didn't do was help stop the incidence of birth defects. And it is clear that there is not one cause. This is multifactorial. There are lots of reasons why a mother may have a baby with a birth defect. Some congenital anomalies are genetic, some congenital anomalies are dietary, but the sheer volume and the sheer diversity of these congenital anomalies or birth defects as they're known colloquially were linked with war because of the timing and their diversity. And so they started to catalog things, they started to do some research, but families also started to contend with this in different ways. So a lot of the families that I have lived and work with, when someone has a new baby One of the first questions you ask, is it a boy or a girl? And another question you ask is, is it healthy? And became so prevalent, the problem of birth defects became so prevalent that oftentimes the answer I got when I would ask this question myself is, from what we can tell so far, yes. Because when a child is born healthy, that doesn't stop the fear that there is something internal that hasn't been detected yet. Of course, now I'm conducting a case control study with a team of researchers. I'm an anthropologist, there's an epidemiologist, there is an environmental doctor, and then of course the hospital staff and parents who are participating in this study to try and understand whether there's a relationship between where people lived and the incidence of birth defects. And in the course of this study, I've been doing interviews with families who have been facing multiple congenital anomalies. I think the most contemporary story that I heard was really tragic. I, I interviewed a woman who at the time was about five months pregnant. And so she is due about now, maybe she's already delivered. And you know, I'm talking to this woman who's pregnant, she's young, she's healthy. She has a healthy daughter who's about four running in and out, and yet she looks distraught. And I'm asking her about her, her history of giving birth and her health and her exposure. And the whole time we're talking, everybody knows, we all know that the child in her body has no brain and no head. Because a month before, she went to get a sonogram and and have a normal checkup. And the doctor said, I'm sorry, your baby is not going to live. And you are going to be delivering a child who may survive labor, may few minutes. And she knows this and now she's living her daily life. And we can't prove exactly why her particular child is going to be born this way or was born this way. But what we do know as we're going through her extensive environmental health history and her exposure and that of her husband's is that they lived in the neighborhood of Chulon and they were there during heavy bombardment in the early 2000s. And then they ended up moving to a refugee community that was downwind of a burn pit. And I can't say where exactly because it would violate their privacy, but they lived downwind of a burn pit for three years. And they remember a wall of black smoke. So every time they looked to one direction, it was always black and they breathed it. They actually ended up covering their faces after a while because it was so intense. And we know that when they returned, they returned to a bombed neighborhood and that her husband and her, that they were both actively cleaning out the burned interior of their home and that he handled missile fragments repeatedly. And we also know that he worked in a factory that was bombed a few years later. And all of these things happened to this family before she became pregnant. This is just one of many stories in which the constant and perpetual bombardment to the body from various types of military violence have infiltrated her system and that of her husbands, and therefore had an intergenerational impact, because her daughter is going to watch a younger sibling die, and she is likely to have another child who also is born with a birth defect. So she is facing intergenerational violence, and her body
0: is carrying the imperial burden through gestation. Kali Rubai is an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University, specializing in displacement, ecologies of war, and health justice. She lived in Fallujah over the past year leading a team of doctors, epidemiologists, and environmental activists to conduct a case control study among families experiencing birth defects that may be linked to environmental exposure from burn pits and bombings. We'll talk more after a short break. From Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. For those of you joining us, I am Malihera Zozan, and you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa on KPFA in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. This week, I'm speaking with Professor Kali Robai. She's an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University, specializing in displacement, ecologies of war, and health justice. She lived in Fallujah over the past year, leading a team of doctors, epidemiologists, and environmental activists to conduct a case control study among families experiencing birth defects that may be linked to environmental exposure from burn pits and bombings. So through this study, you're trying to understand the long-term environmental exposure from burn pits and bombings, as you said. So what factors are you looking for? What are the parameters of this study? What are some of the variables and what are the constants in this study? Sure, the first part is ethnographic,
1: understanding the processes of people's exposure. Because of course, different people have different ways of relating to these factors. The other part is to go through all of the confounding factors that can influence people's health. So. Do you smoke? Were you exposed to cigarettes growing up? Do you have gestational diabetes? All of those health factors. Um, did you marry a relative? And compile those to understand the degree to which we can link something to the environmental factors versus all of these other health factors. It's a case control study, which means that we're working with families who have had children with birth defects and families who haven't in Fallujah, as well as a random sample of families in color which is a less bombarded location. And the idea is to understand what is in common and what is different between cases and controls. The problem with the study is that all of the records of incidences of birth defects were destroyed up until 2017 because Fallujah was heavily bombed and attacked in 2016 by the Iraqi government as part of ousting ISIS from control. And so we're working with a very limited scope for now And we will find other ways to expand that in the future. The environmental factors we're checking for include part of the environmental, part of the exposures are labor related, right? So what kind of hazards are you exposed to at work? If you're a truck driver and you're breathing fumes all day, that's really important for us to document. If you are working in a grocery store, that's different. If you're a farmer, what pesticides are you working with? So looking at all the kinds of occupational exposure people have, And then we're also looking at military forms of exposure. Did you handle dead bodies? Did you handle heavy metals? We ask these in various ways. Do you remember periods of time in which there was a fire nearby? What period of time? And then the last part is to actually map and document exactly where people lived at every single stage in their life, because we're talking about parents. And as we know, people's exposure in their teen years, right before gestation, right before conception, all have an influence on their reproductive health. And the idea is to take that mapped data and compare it to proximity to known fixed polluters like burn pits that are well-documented and then also to battle periods. So were you away or in your neighborhood when there was heavy bombardment in 2014, in 2016, these well-known periods of battle? And the idea is to get as broad and comprehensive a picture of this very complex set of exposures in order to inform a bigger study that would allow us to to really drive in on specific factors. And that's in sum what this case control study is about.
0: You have established that there has been a rise in birth defects in Iraq after the 2003 war.
1: We have not Officially statistically established that. But I think we will be able to do that soon. But in fact,
0: that has not been it has not been fully that. established, officially established, but there are evidence of that yes. happening. Is this phenomenon only happening in Fallujah, which seems to be the, the center of gravity, unfortunately? Is it happening in other parts of Iraq, like in Baghdad or other yes. parts of Ambar province?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think one of the reasons Fallujah has the most attention on this issue is because it was one of the most heavily bombarded cities. Yeah. Also, it's a place where people are having a lot of children. So um, in places like Baghdad, actually, there are just fewer children being born. But Basra, Baghdad, these places are all seeing all a myriad health problems that are related to war. and. It is true that in other countries that have had severe exposure to various forms of military induced toxins, there are also reports of reproductive health issues, infertility, birth defects. And this allows us for some transnational comparison.
0: In 2021, you met Haj Ali. It's a pseudonym. He had 52 cows before the war before the 2003 American invasion and occupation of Iraq. And now he has two. Can you share his story and what happened to his cows? Why is he left with only two cows? When I met Ajali, I was asking him about birth
1: defects. And he said, I have a birth defect story. And he took me out and he showed me his cow. And he actually had a piece of a cow that had been stuffed. It was really unrecognizable. But I saw hooves. It was almost like a pillow with hooves. And he said, that is my heifer's baby. It was born without limbs. It was born with birth defects. And it wasn't the first time. But Haj Ali is under such economic pressure and he's feeding a family, what he did was when the baby died, it caused so much, I was crying and mourning, and he ended up stuffing the hide of the baby and using that to induce her to continue to make milk based on the smell of her baby's hide because he didn't want to breed her again because clearly she's having reproductive health problems and it's not his first cow to have these problems, but he still needed her to make milk. And so, this was this really tragic story about a birth defect, a, a not human birth defect, in which the economic effects are just as devastating as the social effects. Hajali is not only dispossessed by a chemical regime that has destroyed his capacity and his land's capacity to carry life, he was also displaced several times. And between the burn pit that he observed making all different kinds of colored smoke and different kinds of weather above his trees that eventually died, he was also displaced and wasn't able to fertilize and irrigate the trees for several years. So when he came back, the entire microbial wealth of the soil had evaporated and he had to start building soil from scratch. At the same time, he noticed that when he bought new chickens, you know, he'd buy chicks or chickens, and then they would lay eggs. That the second generation of chickens were born weird. He would describe them as walking with a wobble. They were they had neurological problems and they had trouble growing feathers. Hajali is just as scientific as any other farmer. He said, you know, I kind of did like a test. I would buy a new batch of chickens from a completely different place. And then I'd bring them to my land and they'd get sick. And I realized that I'm feeding them food from land that is then making them sick. And so he started, his solution has been now he has to import grain also. So he's importing chickens, he's importing grain, because the land itself can't sustain life in the way that it would have. And he attributes this to living downwind from the Palad Air Base in Yathrib, because he watched his plants and his animals become sicker and sicker and sicker over the course of U.S. occupation. And then the final straw was his displacement and return, which really severed his microbial relationship with the land that he had been cultivated since he was a child. And of course. Haj Ali is just one person and he has all of these children and grandchildren now and he is trying to sustain a community, an ecological community and a human community amidst the long-term impact of a burn pit that isn't there anymore. It's been buried, but its impact and its its ghostliness is still living.
0: You alluded to sandstorms. Kali climate change and environmental degradation has led to more intense and frequent sandstorms in Iraq. Sand and dust storms usually occur when strong winds lift large amounts of sand and dust from bare dry soils into the atmosphere. In May, more than 4,000 Iraqis ended up in hospital with respiratory problems, but soil in Iraq is also contaminated with toxins, including depleted uranium. So in Iraq, people could be inhaling toxic particulates during these sandstorms. Yeah.
1: So I think one of the core concepts that I'm working with in my own research is this idea of counter-resurgency. that war and counterinsurgency limit the capacity uh, to resist or or to fight. But counter resurgency is the practices that limit or undermine a people's capacity to recover from the shock of war. So, environmentally, an individual military battle isn't necessarily uh, irreparable, right? Trees grow back microbes come back. Uh, The environment has this really powerful way of resurging after violence. I think looking at like the aftermath of Chernobyl is a good example, right? Uh, In the aftermath of Chernobyl, humans left and wolves came back and ecologies resurged. And so um, environments have this incredible capacity to recover if we leave them alone. But what happened in Iraq after US invasion in 2003 that I think was more devastating than even previous iterations of violence that are part of this longer uh, violent relationship um, that Iraq has experienced with, with US involvement decade after decade and then of course neighboring countries as well, is that there have been measures put in place that are counter-resurgent. They limit the capacity to recover. And those include limiting farmer's ability to buy a diversity of seeds or to have food sovereignty, um, limiting the capacity of the government to regulate environmental devastation. And one of those factors that is counter-resurgent is climate change itself. So it's one thing to leave burn pits and bombs and, you know, the detritus of war on the ground. It's another thing for all of us to be consuming fossil fuels at a rate that increase the dust storms that then pick up all of the heavy metals and other toxins on that ground and then send it directly into people's lungs. And it is absolutely true when I was in Iraq this last year there were more dust storms than I'd ever seen before and I was coughing all the time and I had breaks and I wasn't a developing child or an elderly person and it's not just the acute particulate matter that's sending people into hospitals with breathing problems it's the long-term effect of breathing in what are people breathing in they're breathing in the past of war and their bodies are having to bear this perpetual inundation, even when battles have stopped. And dust storms are one of many environmental factors that are making that exponential, especially for this next generation of Iraqis who are developing, right? These are, these are children who are developing under toxified conditions. UNICEF has been really concerned with dust storms and is starting to fund more studies on this to better understand what can be done. Um, because anyone who's, who's lived through these knows that it doesn't matter how well you seal your windows or purify your air, that dust is getting in, right? It's very fine dust.
0: How significant are grassroots social and environmental justice movements and organizations in Iraq? In Fallujah,
1: that's very limited. There are environmental activists sometimes who do work in social justice contexts like promoting democracy or women's rights. They're including the environment in those campaigns. And more rooted in the south, but of course, all over Iraq, is the, the effort to protect the rivers. Of course, the Tigris and Euphrates are the are the heart of, of Iraq. And there are concerted and organized efforts to protect the rivers and to restore the marshes to their to their health, to their original health. And I think that these campaigns are of course, limited by the kind of limitations we all face when we struggle for environmental justice anywhere. Um, there is a lot of private interest in preventing these campaigns. I also know there are a lot of less organized, right? Less uh, visible campaigns by individual communities who live um, in at the foot of big factories, for example, in Bazian Valley in, in Northern Iraq, who are fighting uh, from a grassroots level for basic environmental mitigation um, or at least financial compensation for the damage to their land and to their bodies. And these are what I would describe as disorganized in the sense that they are not part of a national campaign. And yet these efforts are happening everywhere. And um, as invisible as they are, they're really powerful in, in keeping things from getting worse than they already are. Uh, Omar Dawashi and other scholars have been calling for repair of Iraq's healthcare system. Mm. And I think that that campaign is really critical because what makes something like a birth defect lethal in many cases is not the congenital anomaly itself but the inability to actually get the health care one needs to survive it. And the health care system, of course, deals with corruption. It also deals with military devastation. But the campaigns for health justice that we're seeing surrounding the PACT Act could be extended um, for Iraqis who are facing the long-term effects of war and supporting the health care infrastructure is the best way
0: to make that happen. Kali, you are co-founder and director of the Islah Reparations Project, a small community of Americans and Europeans paying reparations to people occupied directly or indirectly by their militaries. You've said, in the case of Iraq, that it's time to talk about reparation. How does that exactly work?
1: Uh, I'm I'm incredibly wary. Large-scale foreign intervention no matter what it is, and I, I, what I wouldn't want to see is big NGOs coming in and, you know, quote unquote fixing the land, fixing the environment in the image of an imperial aesthetic, uh, which has happened and, and does happen. What reparations is is a grassroots, a people-led, right, an Iraqi-led effort, and the acknowledgement of harm. And the redistribution of resources to support Iraqi-led campaigns, grassroots campaigns. And 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 it seems very clear to me that you know we've just listed only the environmental impacts of military violence, and the kind of repair efforts that people are doing deserve political and financial backing from people around the world. And that to me is what reparations means, is is an uh, an acknowledgement of harm and a redistribution of resources to actually support the capacity of people to repair from the kind of violations that they have faced for decades. Look, the Army Corps of Engineers in the name of green militarism has done a lot of damage. The the way that making war better for the environment happens is oftentimes when like military regimes or NGOs that are partnered with those regimes come in and change a people and their landscape. I mean, this has happened many times in history. So what I wanna be clear on is that uh, redistributing resources, right, paying reparations to Iraqi people by the U.S. government, by U.S. citizens, by anyone, is not the same as coming in and taking over a project to change the landscape. We've already done enough of that. And so we have to be very careful of the way that environmental restoration can be superseded and hijacked by a military agenda. That's the kind of green greening of militarism we have to be careful of. So what I think we're looking for here, or what I would like to see is for um, US veterans who have just won this incredible health justice battle for the PACT Act, extending reparative care to Iraqis who face the same exposure. I would like to see on the 20th anniversary of the US invasion of Iraq, a concerted effort by both civilians and the government to send a whole bunch of resources back to Iraqi people after they have been plundered for generations. What I don't want to see is a militarized effort to come in and fix the landscape in the image of of an imperial aesthetic.
0: Kali Rubai is an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University, specializing in displacement, ecologies of war and health justice. She has worked closely with Iraqi families since 2009 and lived in Fallujah over the past year, leading a team of doctors, epidemiologists, and environmental activists to conduct a case-control study among families experiencing birth defects that may be linked to environmental exposure from burn pits and bombings. She's also co-founder and director of the Slough Reparations Project, a small community of Americans and Europeans paying reparations to people occupied directly or indirectly by their militaries. You can learn more about the project at reparations.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com.